so thank you for um, being up for this conversation, Robert. Um, so the background, just um, obviously we know it, but for anyone that's listening into this, um, was that I had a conversation with um, Rupert Spira about non-duality and specifically around whether consciousness was, whether everything exists in consciousness. And you responded to that conversation in a way that really uh, seemed very interesting. And it seemed to fire off a whole conversation amongst a lot of people on um, Facebook. And I think you mentioned maybe, you know, that you'd, you'd quite like to chat with me anyway. I can't remember what happened, but it felt like, yeah, we should, we should talk directly rather than trying to communicate on typing. Um, and here we are. Yeah, I think what happened is I expressed a really a real interest in that interview because you'd done something that I'd never heard done before except coming out of my mouth, which was to call Rupert's logical argument into question. And I really loved hearing that because I got a lot of blowback when I did it. And uh, suddenly I felt a little bit redeemed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then we have a mutual friend, Jeannie. Uh, yes, Gilbury and uh, Gil Gilbury. Yes, and she uh, she said that she'd propose a meeting to you for us to discuss whatever. And so yeah. We, yeah. So I, it's it's a great conversation because I don't think either of us know that much about the other. Um, apart from it seems we have some shared interests, for sure. How would you describe yourself, Robert? How, how do you see what you've been doing in the world? Well, what a, what a question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, many years ago, when I was in my late 30s, I had a rather dramatic awakening experience. Nothing had, that I'd ever experienced before, except maybe as a young child where and at the time it really blew my mind to say it now it's just words so um but it was suddenly i realized this is all here including robert and i'm not doing it there's not i'm not doing anything it's just here it doesn't sound like much to say that but it got my attention and it got my attention so much that a few years later, I dropped out of the art career that I had been pursuing, which was a pretty hot career. I had had New York shows and um, wow. international exhibitions published in Aperture and all this stuff. I couldn't do it anymore. I found that I was drinking too much to go to the openings and I didn't like the people I was meeting in life. And then I had a very profound experience. I had fallen very ill and I was that way for a long time and was feeling desperate. I had tried everything to him, nothing seemed to help. So I consulted a naturopath, a young guy who had just come to the community and um, he was taking my history and gazing into my eyes. And when I looked deeply into his eyes, I saw this boundless compassion, boundless compassion, the way that a mother might look at a child, it was beautiful. And it was almost like a voice arose in me. It wasn't a real voice, but it was almost like I heard this. And it said, this is what you should be doing. 
not naturopathy, but compassion. And I, I really took it to heart. And when I, when I felt better, um, I went back to school and got some psychology degrees and opened a psychotherapy practice. Um, I'd been reading psychology anyway, pretty much all my life. It was an interest, a hobby. And so getting the academic stuff together wasn't really that hard. And uh, I've been practicing. Uh, I had been practicing for more than 20 years. I've, I'm retired now. Um, well, anyway, I don't want to drag this out, but when, when I was doing the psychotherapy work, I didn't know anything about internet web pages, none of that, but I knew I needed a web page. So I made one that was just a brochure for my therapy practice. That's all. And then I began to get some letters and respond to them on the, on the web page. And um, soon that web page became huge. I mean, it's had millions of views. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and all, all, all this was really, I would say now just from following my my intuition about what I needed to do in life, which was not be a famous artist. Um, that's what you call having climbing the ladder, but the ladder's up against the wrong wall. I've heard that. Said. I did the same thing. <laughs> oh, really? I want to hear about that. <laughs> Let me just put the cap on, on this yeah, one. Um, In the, in the last couple of years of my therapy practice, I had one client uh, whom I really wanted to help. And one day she asked me a, a profound question. She said, Robert, every time I come here, you're always the same. You're always calm and smiling. You never seem upset, no matter what. How do you, what is that? You know? And I, I answered her, honestly which is something that really isn't done in psychotherapy. <laughs> My friend at the time, Robert Hall, Dr. Robert Hall, he's now deceased. He was a well-known Buddhist teacher and we've been having these weekly conversations, exploratory conversations. And he'd been a, a psychiatrist. Um, well, I went to him and confessed what I did and I asked him, that's out of bounds, isn't it? What do you think? And he said, well, he said, I think you're a teacher of non-duality and that's what you really should be doing. What did you say to that? Um, or what was the essence of what you, when you said you said you just honest, what was? What, the, essence, what, what, the, essence, the essence was, it's not, these aren't the words I said, it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the essence of it was, I'm not really identified with my ups and downs. They just seem to be happening. And there's some other viewpoint. And I'm in that viewpoint most of the time, not feeling the ups and downs as if they were happening, as if they were crucial. Yeah. Um, well, so um, then, um, well, Robert told me you're a teacher of non-duality and I hadn't, didn't know much about non-duality. I knew it was a thing. I should say, I, I had, didn't read spiritual books at that time. I read books on science and psychology and history. That's, those are my interests. So, but I knew what it was, and I immediately felt put off by that. I, I, I said, you know, I don't want to go on a big ego trip, Robert, and all this. 
well, he was a very slick kind of guy and he somehow manipulated me into receiving a couple of, of women from his sangha who had been troubled and he couldn't get through to them. And I did that for a couple of years. People started to come to me for spiritual teaching. And um, after a while, I realized that that was hurting me. Maybe it was helping them, but I wasn't telling the, the truth exactly about my inner, my real experience. I, I had a lot of boilerplate that I'd learned from Zen and you know all this, and it was kind of repetitious, not not heartfelt. So I said, this is no good. I'm going to stop doing this. And um, I told Robert that and he said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, uh, I don't know, but I, I'm going, one thing I've decided is I'm not going to lie anymore to anyone. I'm pretty old now, whatever anybody says to me, I'm just going to say exactly how that strikes me. And he said, that's going to be pretty hard. You're going to not make a lot of friends doing that. How old were you, Robert, when you made that, when you said, when you said, I feel, how old were you? It's a matter of interest. Um, how old was I? I'm 75 now. I was in my uh, early 60s. Yeah, I was in my early 60s. So, um, well, I started doing that and um, I started writing a bit and posting it on my website, but these were different. This was a whole different level of communication because it had a hard edge to it. Well, I started to point out that all this love and stuff, yes, that exists, but there's another side to all of this and yes. So then um, a man named John Troy, who had a radio show called Wisdom's Soft Whisper, got in touch with me, he'd read some of my stuff and wanted to interview me. And I didn't know it at the time, but he had interviewed many famous spiritual teachers and knew Papaji and all these people that I don't know anything. I didn't know anything about them at the time. And he told me I needed to get on Facebook. I'd heard of it, but I didn't know anything about it. He had a, a Facebook group. Um, and he asked me to help him admin it. So now I'm suddenly overnight in the thick of all these spirituality conversations. And I reacted to them with the protocol that I just told you. <laughs> I made some friends and some not so friends. <laughs> and that's just evolved into to where it is now. Now I published a couple of books. People have found the books liberating. Um, I don't think in this grandiose sense of liberating, liberated from being human, but I, there's an honesty to them and a kind of uh, debunking of, of uh, attractive fantasies, let's say. And this thing with Rupert evolved because someone sent me a, I didn't know who Rupert was, I'd heard of him, I heard him on the radio once and kind of liked him. He was a nice voice and very gentle, good manner, seemed like a very sweet guy. And I said that in my first book, I like Rupert, I don't know much about him. But when I saw this videotape, I was very shocked. Um, I, he used 
logic to intimidate people. In, in my view, that's what I saw there. And that felt bad. And um, he also was kind of practicing psychotherapy, having people come up to a microphone and speak to him. And they ended up weeping. And he didn't even know how to put them back together again so they could leave the meeting and go to the street. I mean, it, it, it felt bad from my training and my experience. So I started to, to criticize him a bit. And that irritated a lot of people because I, I didn't know this at the time, but I know now that he's a real hero in this field. And many people look to him as, as a, a beacon of truth. And so to wrap this up, I'm sorry it's so long-winded. That's a whole life and you're 75. <laughs> yeah. That's right. But I also know I'm going to be quiet. I spent a lot of time alone. But um, when I heard you uh, say that this argument of his about consciousness was a tautology, I said, bingo, that's the problem with it. There's nothing wrong with it, but you're not proving that that you're not proving uh, panpsychism, that everything's conscious. All you're saying is awareness exists. Well, that's obvious. I mean, phenomenologically, we're aware. I'm not sure that you're aware, but I'm sure that I am. And I just assume that as another human being, yes. So that's that story. <laughs> So uh, well, there's a lot of things in there I'm really interested in, Robert. I mean, one of the things is um, just to just to just to finish the little interlude that I said. Yeah, I set I set out when I was younger, probably around the same age, maybe that you. I, I'd had awakenings much much earlier, but I'd set out to be a musician and and was knocking hard on this door, which would open and close and open and close, and uh, and then I fell into writing, and then from writing, people asked me to to teach, and so I started doing that and um it was the same thing it was like wrong place and then and yet all of that really did help and prepared me i'm sure for for me able to do it differently but the bit i wanted there was two things one was um one was uh that you said it was in your I, i'm 61 and i feel a real sense that's been growing probably for 10 years but it's getting stronger of that commitment now just to telling the truth i i started a whole video series where i start a little while back called the man behind the image where i just wanted to come out and go look all my all the things you get from me on the back of books all the things that the publishers are doing all of that's an image and but i'm actually a person and there's a real life here and if i could just try and communicate a bit more about that i think it would be be better for everybody and better for me so I kind of resonate with that a lot um, but the first thing I want but the other thing I wanted to pick up on was what you said right at the start which intrigued me you said you described the experience you had of the awakening when you were 30 something whatever and then you said it sounds like just words now and I wonder what you meant by that oh um, well Oh, what a, what a, that's a really deep question. That just opened up an entire... Yeah, <laughs> I thought it might. <laughs> Do you want to um, go there? Yeah, sure. It, um, if I start, I think I'm going to end up giving a short talk, if that's okay. Okay, well, just say, say what you need to, and then, you know, and... Um, uh, well... I know you're interested in evolution and evolutionary biology. 
So when I think about statements that people make in language, I imagine back to the time of hominids, proto-humans, who just began to grunt and grunt at each other and point, and, 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 and language evolved from that, as I imagined it. I could be wrong, but that's how I imagine It seems pretty reasonable assumption, I would thought. Yeah. So then words began to evolve that could not just point physically, but could evoke something symbolically, like a tiger. So then if I said, there are wild yams in that valley, but there are tigers there also, so watch your ass if you go over there to get the yams. That could be, there was a feedback loop that could be verified. Someone would go there if there were no yams, they'd come back and say, hey, you put me on a wild goose chase, Robert, what's the deal? But if you went there and there were yams and tigers and the guy managed to retrieve the yams and not be eaten, I would gain credibility. My, my words would be, become more credible because there's a, they're, they're factual. There's a feedback loop. Yeah. Well, I think some time ago, maybe, I don't know, 4,000, 3,000, I'm just guessing, language became more symbolic than that to where psychological states and ideas and theories could be evoked in language, pure language. Now there's a problem, as I see it, because there's no feedback loop. So if I say God is in the heavens, how can that be verified or falsified? Well, it cannot. And it's, it's not like yams and tigers, not at all. And, and um, why not? I mean, it's, well, it's, it's certainly different. But why, why isn't it? Why isn't it? Like, um, like the, the one of the things always uh, Wittgenstein's idea that language works through shared experience. So, if you're referring to an experience which you call God, and I go and you describe that experience, and I go, oh, yeah, I, I have that experience, then we we understand through shared experience. If, if on the other hand, someone hasn't got that experience, then that's true of everything, isn't it? Even the tiger. If you don't know what a tiger is, it's like, well, I don't know what that means. If, if there's a shared experience, isn't there just as much feedback? Um, no, I wouldn't say so. That's another question, though. I mean, that's a, okay. that's a question of ontology and epistemology, you know, that we should get into that. I mean, that's very interesting. I like, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about that for sure. Um, just to, so, um, what this is just the way I see it. You may not agree. Um, once we're in this place where statements can be made that are not directly verifiable by by sight and touch and all this, but their ideas, people can gain credibility not by making accurate predictions the way the proto-human or the way the early humans could. This guy's right on. He knows there's no. They could be. They could gain credibility by being convincing. Just being convincing, and one of the best ways to become convincing is to convince oneself. 
that's the best way, really. If I believe something and then I tell you this is true and I really believe it's true, that, that has tremendous power. And that is my critique of spirituality. I think a lot of it is fantasy. Not mm -hmm. all. Me too. Not all. Yeah, me too. And so, but continue with what you were saying about... So, so I think that the, the I mean, my, I, I, your conclusion, I have great sympathy for. Um, I can't, I think, and obviously it is different. I mean, there's something, and, and partly I think that's because, well, like you suggested, language will have started with the sensory world. And then we've got ideas, not about the sensory world, but ideas about ideas. And then we're describing internal states and, and so forth. So if I come to you and I want to describe, I don't know, my experience on ayahuasca, say, and you haven't had that experience, it's going to be almost impossible. But if you have had that experience and I start ex describing it, then it's quite likely you'll go, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. It may, you know, it, and it's verifiable because you have the experience. So the, the, to me, that it's not that those things can't be, can't be verified. It's just we're dealing with a more rarefied level of reality. However, I do think you're right in that what happens around well, anything, actually, but I'm, I've specialized in spirituality, so that's where I see it. I'm sure if I was into politics as much as I'd see it just as much in that, that people being over-convinced because they, they're not, they, can't, they, can't, they don't understand doubt. They don't understand the necessity to question. And then that, that what people end up looking for is certainly in spirituality a lot and probably politics and elsewhere too, science even, is somebody who's certain. Because, I mean, I know for me when I was younger, I was very attracted to the idea that I would find a truly enlightened master because they knew. And even though there was somebody, just to, just to know there was somebody in the whole world who knew was a relief. And that's completely changed now. But so, so I think there's two, there's two different things there. One is about, can we make statements about these things and are they valid? And I think they are, but also in spirituality, the critique you're making of, well, just, just that an awful lot of, it's not just that it's, there's a lot that isn't linked to experience at all. And so therefore it doesn't mean anything. Then there's a lot which is linked to experience, but I'm not convinced the experience I think a lot of the experiences may be what gets called mental malfunctioning of some form. I mean, I think there's an awful lot of spirituality, which is kind of a unhealthy. So, yeah, the, the two different things, though, but I, I agree with where you ended up. Did that make sense? Of course. I think we are, we're on the same page. If not exactly on the same line, we're on the same page. Right. Um, uh, you mentioned... Um, ayahuasca see that that's a special case not just ayahuasca but psychedelic drugs in general because if you have never taken if you've never eaten any mushrooms you don't have to believe anything if you eat a few grams of mushrooms something will happen you don't have to have any faith that something will happen you don't have to believe that something will happen you don't have to say thousands of people have had this experience and so, of course, it's real. Something actually happens. There's no... But I think that, that is true. Or not. Isn't yeah. that true of all those? You know, I mean, it's obvious. Yeah, completely right. I mean, why psychedelics are, are such good initiators is because you can't miss it. Yeah. But there's two things. One is you're still left with how do I interpret that? 
So when I had psychedelic experiences when I was young for the first time, I interpreted them through a lens given to me by Aldous Huxley and Alan Watts and all those people. But I've also known people who, who's, so for me, it was a confirmation of a lot of spiritual ideas, but I know people for whom it was a confirmation of materialism. It was like, well, see, it's just all chemicals. And so it was still the interpretation was there. And that was, so you're still left with that. And I think that's true of just about all experiences, including spiritual ones. But what I wanted to say was there is also experiences like awakening, whatever that may mean, but that experience where, and I've been with, I've had, you know, since I was little, I've been with a lot of people who've awoken for the first time and you don't miss it. It's not, you know, and before you don't know what it is and then suddenly you do. And that's a, it's a, ta it, what I'm trying to say is I think all of these things, do, there can be an experiential counterpart like your tiger. You can still go to places and go test it out. Is it, is it real? Is it just nonsense? If I say, like I say to my, people who are interested in what I do, look, there is, a, there is a love which is so big you can't miss it. It vibrates in every cell in your body and when you feel it, it won't be like some abstract thing. So, and then if they feel it, they feel it. And if they don't, they, then, then they should doubt what I say until they do feel it. That's my, my kind of approach. Well, I think that's true of psychological states for sure. If, if you describe some psychological state of yours, when I say psychological state, I don't mean it in a materialistic way. Sure. It may be only a brain state, as some people believe, or it might not be. I, I, that's an open question in, in my world. But if you have a psychological state, you've just mentioned one, I feel this overwhelming love, and I can't doubt it. It's so, so strong. I can hear that and try to find a... a uh, congruent experience w within my own bi biography. <laughs> and if I do, then I will say, yeah, I know what Tim's talking about. It's this, it's this thing. Yeah. Um, and no doubt about that. I, I don't have any doubt that that's, that's a form of communication that, that's real. That's not what, see, some people think I'm a materialist, but I'm not, I'm really not. I, I just, I'm, but I am a stickler on language because if language is used in the wrong way, it becomes hypnotic. And that's, that's really, there's an awful lot of hypnotized people in the world of spirituality. I came to it from the outside and I saw it. But I saw there were also people who weren't hypnotized. They were filled with love and they wanted to share that. And that's, that's beautiful. So I'm not, I'm not trying to shoot holes in any of it. That's not I, what I'm... I, I, I'm, I, I'm the same. I mean, I didn't come from the outside. I came very much from the inside in a, way, in a sense, because I've been since I was, a, I, I was a teenager. But so my story would be, the, would be the opposite because it was so early. I've been involved in this for 40 something years. And if you spend enough time with something, you really get to see what it is. And so my problem is that I'm far more critical of spirituality than most of the people that, that are interested in what I've got to say, because they're very attracted to it often because they're just coming to it. So it's all fresh and new. And I'm quite jaded with it. I'm, and, and I'm looking for something more, more honest, just something yeah. which can actually engage with the human condition as it actually, as it actually is, not in some fantasy 
fantasy way without, like you've just said, without wanting to discount other things. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to engage with the fact that in my experience, magic happens. It does. Now, and I want to understand how that could be true in a world in which also magic doesn't happen. For instance, you know, that those, the, the way that life can become so dreamlike and, and a, have a narrative quality fascinates me because I've had it so much in my journey and yet life is also very cause and effect and how do they fit together? So I don't want to discount all those things. When I say it's a fantasy, I'm not discounting um, the miraculous or any of it, actually. I'm, I'm wanting to stay open to the ideas, but I want to engage with people, and this is why I was attracted to talking to you, who are actually able to stand back from it and ask the difficult questions. And so I spend most of my time, especially these days, doing that with my own ideas, just constantly stepping back. And the stuff that happened with, with Rupert, as you probably realize, was, it took me a long time to get there because it was a, it was a very grounding assumption and I finally got down to the ground and made a question that assumption and then realized I, I made a mistake and was able to actually d open up a better experience um, from it. So it's that quality of doubting it, I think, that's very central to me. Yes. So I think, I, I mean, I'm just a natural skeptic. I mean, I never <laughs> tried, to, tried to be. You're a philosopher, so you understand even more about the history of all this than I do, I'm quite sure. You, I'm, I'm rather naive, really, about, about philosophy. Um, no, no, I, I am a philosopher, Robert. You know, I realize that now. I really am. But, and I've studied philosophy a lot. And, but you know, I only called myself a philosopher publicly to avoid being called a spiritual teacher. <laughs> I just, I just couldn't hack being a spiritual teacher. And the reason I couldn't hack that was because unlike a maths teacher or an English teacher, it comes with a whole load of baggage about that you're different and that you have an authority somehow, which uh, I don't want to have. And I don't like it when other people take. And one of the areas that really troubles me in spirituality is the whole sitting on the stage with someone slightly lower than you wearing symbolic clothes to create an authority figure playing into these archetypes, which take away one's self-empowerment so that rather than setting the other person free, which is the, the, what the, the game is called, it ends up having the opposite effect. And I find that very disturbing. Well, that's music to my ears, Tim. Pure music. You were a musician and it's, you're still playing music. It's just different. <laughs> so, yeah. So I feel that way too. I mean, I'm still a photographer, but I'm just not making a career of it. But right. I think one of the best things I have to give to the world is not my books and talk, but the images. You mentioned the imaginal a few times in this other talk of yours that I saw. And I'd love to get into that with you and hear more about that. Mm -hmm. Before we get there, it seems that you and I are kind of like bookends in a way. You mentioned that a lot of the people who are interested in your work are just kind of getting their feet wet in spirituality. They're at the, at the beginning, maybe they've had this experience and want to know more about it. I seem to be at the other end. I'm the, I'm, my audience is mostly people who know more about spirituality than I do, they, <laughs> truly. They know who all these people are. I don't. I'm, 
I didn't know who Ramana Maharshi was until a few years ago. I'd heard his name, but people kept mentioning it, and I had to bone up on it. God bless Google. <laughs> Thank goodness for Wikipedia. <laughs> no, that's right. I said, I don't want you know, I'll just go and page of his quotes. There's like 25 quotes. Now I, now I get this guy. See? <laughs> it's terrible the way. But so I, the, the people that I get are these people who are habituated or, and, and they can't live without it. And yet they're not, it's not getting them where they expect it to get. They're not right. happy. They're not free. They're not. And they, they look at me and I seem happy and free. I really am because I'm not afraid to die. And I think about death every day. I think that's a practice, a good one. Memento yeah, me too. Me too. It's a basic, basic, basic grounding practice. Yeah. And then we don't take ourselves so seriously. I mean, after all, yeah. come on. Well, so those are, those, my, that's my audience. My audience is people who are sophisticated spiritually and they they feel that that somehow my work rescues them it it capsized their boat one guy says or this is, you know you know so we, but we we seem to have a similar attitude really of openness with a bit of skepticism I, I actually, my, my, my folks, um, the people that, that come to my work are incredibly varied. And I love that. And it's partly because one side of my work is not as a philosopher, it's very practical. It's about connection. It's very much about love. I've spent 20 years putting people in front of each other while playing music and saying, hey, just look in each other's eyes and then doing it with another person and another person and another person and just moving into a place of just where it's about love. So there's people come because of more of the feeling side. There's people who get into the philosophy side. I've also done academic books a bit. So some people come expecting lectures. So there's a whole mix mash of people. Scientists come, people who reject all of that. Come. So it, it, it is a very interesting mishmash of people some people have been around it i mean people have been with me for a couple of decades let alone before that um and then people who are just coming coming fresh and 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 that really i kind of like that because what i'm what i feel like i feel I, I think that we need a new spirituality that's the honest truth and having studied all of these spiritual traditions and written about them all in my in my past at a certain point it felt like oh look i need to try i need to my i need to do what they did and why I'm interested in these people is because they moved it on in some place. They found themselves, they found themselves alive, having these experiences. They had a tradition which they grew up in. Most of them only had one, not like us, where we got them all. And then they tried to move it on. And my feeling is, look, spirituality does have something to offer, something important. But we need to, you know, we need to get rid of the bathwater and keep the baby. We need to and, and, and it's been immersed in religion and now that's going. Uh, and now it's developed into a religion of its own in a way with the whole American spirituality thing in particular. And somehow it's about bringing, the latest phrase I've started playing with to see if it works is to just call it a trans-scientific spirituality. So a spirituality which transcends and includes science and can actually join itself together with this incredible body of human knowledge, which has developed over the last 400 years, especially in the last century. Uh, and, and, and somehow 
bring these thing, these things together into one narrative. That's the philosophical job I'm interested in. And then the practical side is to actually make it experiential for the very reason you said about the tigers, because it's no good me going, this is an amazing experience that I had. If you can't have it, because you need to have it for yourself, otherwise it's useless. Um, and ultimately the, the spiritual stuff I'm interested in, like, well, every experience, everything I'm interested in comes down to experience eventually. It has to, because otherwise, what is it? And, and so what I, the reason I'm skeptical about the past is to try and find the bits that are, are value, how they can be recast, re-understood, and then whether it's possible to bring it together with this narrative that all these other people who I respect have been developing and that, you know, which is a very different dimension, you know, to do with the nature of matter and the nature of biology and whether it can all come together. Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot there. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, th this, this, this uh, issue of spirit versus matter is really one of the bedrocks of philosophy. It's been around for a long, long time. Um, Heraclitus ha had this image of this thought experiment, the ship of Theseus. You know that one? It's a, Theseus is a warrior and his ship is uh, in dry dock and it begins to rot. So they take one of the rotting boards out and they put a, a fresh board in and then the next board rots and they replace. Finally, they've, they've replaced every board in the ship. And the, yes, and the question that Heraclitus asked, is this the same ship or it isn't? And that's, see, that's really a question about what does it mean to be something? Is it, is it yeah. material? Yeah, so th th that, that question for me is unresolvable. I, when I, I, I've kind of examined various approaches to it by smart people, um, read what they had to say. I think you can come to believe something about that, but it's such a vast field. Um, I'll just give one example. People don't like the idea that maybe the brain is the source of consciousness. In other words, consciousness is something that a brain does. That, that's like a no-no in spirituality, impossible. If you talk to a spiritual person, they'll just rule that out right away. Well, I don't really see how that can be ruled out. I mean, if you go back to just um, um, 20th century physics, we've got all this indeterminacy and, and um, the brain could be, but that doesn't mean it's like a computer that just you crank it and out comes a thought. You've got photons and we, we don't know where they are and maybe the wave function collapses and that's a thought. Well, that's barely material. We don't know if that's material or it isn't. And I think people who are naive about that information, those are the ones who demean science. I, I, I think science is pretty much where it's at. I don't mean that there are things, issues that science can, where science will fall short. I'm sure there are. I mean, I doubt science is ever going to prove anything about love. Um, they might even find the brain states that people that may even be able to check uh, 
may be able to describe every the state of every neuron in the brain. This will happen because computers are getting amazing. But even so, that feeling is probably not material. It's information, not not structure, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's what you mean by the imaginal, am I right? Would you go into that? Yeah. So so what I so so I want to come. I want to. I'm not going to do it now because you've said some other interesting things. But um, I will have a I will have a pop in a minute at answering the the Heraclitus's shit issue and yeah. see what you make of it because I I, I I I have something I can say about that. The first thing I want to pick on though is that last thing when you talk about information because I think that's the key. Is that. Um, what I see with, with, with science and spirituality is that there's a whole lot of scientists who I hang out with who are incredibly close-minded once it comes to anything which is, not, which is not in the sensory world. It's like what exists is the sensory world. And so the idea that there could be anything else is out of the question. The psyche is merely the brain. That's the way it is. And there's no possibility of anything else. Always makes me laugh because their very theories don't exist in the physical world. You know, you can't find E equals M C squared anywhere. It's you can't find it with your senses, and and they're caught in a. Then on the spiritual side, you've got exactly the same thing, but the opposite. And the problem with spiritual that people I think in spirituality often have, is that they're having experiences that life is richer. That this seems this thing seems to have diminished their life so much, and that they can't buy it because and rightfully. This, they feel like life is, there's more to it than that. And therefore what they do is they look at that and go, well, that's rationality. Therefore rationality is a horrible thing. So throw rationality out the window. We just feel things. We just know things. I have my own truth. And suddenly you've got irrational spirituality, which means that when scientists look across at spirituality, their very greatest fears are obviously there, which is these people aren't even thinking straight. So you've got this horrible, horrible polarity. And I, I think the way that we can put it together is, that, is, is by one narrative of evolving information. And if, so if you take that image that you brought up of information, you know, like John Wheeler's idea that in physics that it comes down to information, then you can see information evolving onto different levels. So a pre-material level of information, which you mentioned in terms of the, um, the, the quantum world, becomes a a physical level of information evolves into a biological level of information and it's now evolved onto an imaginal level of information because what strikes me is exactly what you said about love could also be said about say this sentence that i say this sentence and it's it for your ears it is well, it's getting to you via a lot of electronics but essentially the air is eventually vibrating and you're hearing these sounds but there's no meaning in the sounds. The meaning is extra information, which is in the psyche. So now we have imaginal information. So this is a, this is a more emergent level of reality. It cannot be reduced to the brain any more than the brain actually can be reduced to the chemicals that make it up. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's another level of emergent information and needs to be understood at that. And then you can ask questions about what's its relationship then with the biological level. And my own personal feeling is that the sensory experience, it, it, we are that consciousness is, as you say, I think consciousness is a prioritizing of information. 
I, what I'm conscious of is what I focus on, which is information that's prioritized and the rest is all taken in unconsciously. It's not prioritized. So it is a, it starts as a biological function, whether it remains only a biological function. I'm not, I don't think so. When it gets onto the imaginal level, I think it's now functioning on that level. So it's both, it comes from the biological brain focusing on that's of interest, that's not of interest, but develops onto a more, um, a different, completely non-material non or trans-material. So it's going from pre-material through material, biological, to a trans-material level. And, and, and we're experiencing all of those right now, where they're right here. Yeah, that's what Alan Watts said about consciousness. He said it was like a flashlight. A flashlight, that's right. I came, you shine it, you I came across that just a few days ago. Uh -huh. and, and, that's and I didn't know that. I do love Alan, but I didn't know that. And that's exactly what I've been exploring. It's like, yeah, because that's how I experience it. It's, I'm guessing that's how you experience it. Yeah, so, so this, is the, this, this thing about um, information emerging um, this is a debate now that's been going on for maybe 20 or 30 years in science about yeah. emergence. There's actually two versions of emergence and they, they are not compatible. And there's people on one side of weak emergence, it's called, and then there's strong emergence on the other. The weak emergence, well, emergence is the idea that, that a, an idea or, or a physical substance is the sum of its parts, somehow the sum of its parts. So the example that's given a lot is a water molecule. There's hydrogen and oxygen. Those two alone are just gases. They're not wet. And, but when they come together, one molecule of water isn't wet either. But because of the angle of the of the constituent parts, they can slide over one another very easily, and that's what we call wet. <laughs> they just they're fluids, and that's an emergent quality. Quality, yeah. Yes, or an ant hill. Each ant is mindless and just responding to chemical traces, but there seems to be emerging. A, a, they're doing work. Somehow it comes out. Something emerges. So the weak emergence people are the ones who believe like these hard-nosed science scientists who don't really agree with you eventually we may not have the power to do it yet but eventually everything will be reduced to its its parts it's, it's so, so for me that's the very opposite of emergence yeah well that's that's a form they call it they call that emergence i know but it's really reductionism Yes. It's, so the, it's the opposite of emergence. Yes. Well, that's because the emergence you're talking about is what's called strong emergence. And that idea is that no matter how much information you have about the universe, um, Laplace's demon was an example of this. I don't know if you know about that one. I didn't catch what you said. Which is Laplace, demon? Laplace was a 19th century philosopher and scientist. Laplace. Laplace, oh yes, yes, and I know yeah. what I mean. Yeah. Well, he invented this demon, he called it, that would know the position and the momentum of every particle in the universe. Yeah. The, the question was, would he then be able to predict what's going to happen in the future? Yeah. And what a strong emergence person like you is saying is, no, no, there's something, some surprise comes out of this. So yeah. 
yes, you can know about all the neurons in the brain. You can know about the, the synapses. You can know about what's going on in there. On a more granular level, you come level, you come down to photons, whatever it is. But that still will not explain why an apple tastes tart or, or you fall in love. It won't. That's the idea. Well, I think we're, you and I are pretty much on that one. We're, we agree on that. I'm a strong emergence person also. I, and I, I just call it, there's a mystery here. And it, it's an insoluble, consciousness is an insoluble mystery. I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure we have to go straight. I mean, I mean, please, I mean, everything's a mystery. But I don't think that consciousness has to be an either, a bigger mystery than anything else. I think we can say things about it. So, yeah. so, for, so, so for me, I would say, look, the, 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 another big sh difference for me than, than, than the non-dual community of which I've been in and um, where I, I disagree with it is because I would say that I would not say everything is one. I would say everything is the one in relationship with itself. And that, they, and that, that it's the relationship which is all qualities. So there's a ground of oneness, I just call it being because it's the primal quality that everything has. Everything has this one quality of existing. And that, that seems to be taking on ever more emergent qualities, but that all of those qualities are arising through the relationship of it with itself, whether it's time or energy or any of these qualities that are in the primal qualities in, in physics, right up to what we're experiencing now, where I'm in relationship with it. And everything around me is in relationship with the, with the whole. And that relationship to me, so, so that there's a kind of a subject-object relationship or a transjective, both at once, relationship, which is fundamental to the nature of, of what is. So that everything is a subject in relationship to the object, whether it's a atom or a tiger. It, and and that, that, so that, so that there's a, so that everything is reading the world. And so everything is information reading the rest of the information and in, in the way that it can. And that's so that the evolution which we've seen happen over 14 billion years has been both objective and subjective at the same time. And that, so that by the time you reach biological life, you're, the reading of information around the world is so extraordinary. You're taking in so much information. In plants, let alone you know, in animals, that, you, that it needs to be you need to prioritize some over others because some of it will keep you alive, allow you to procreate and you can eat it. And so some information really matters and the vast majority of it doesn't. So I think what starts starting to happen there is prioritizing of information, the way it's being read. So that if consciousness is the flashlight, then it's the subjectivity, which is runs right the way through existence has become you've been able to focus it. And then I'm doing that right now. Like I'm focusing on you. I'm not really aware of my wife who's in the house doing something or anything else because that's where my flashlight is because that matters to me. But equally now I've thought about it. I'm thinking of my wife. So, so I think we, can, we might be able to make a stab at, at saying what it is. Well, I'm kind of afraid of that, Tim. Because... Um, well... A non-duality truism is there's only one consciousness. The universe is conscious. I don't know that. I, really I don't think don't. that's right at all. I'm I don't sorry. Think that, I, didn't I don't think that's right at all. 
You, no. So it, that doesn't feel right to me. I, I have no way of knowing it. But when people say it, and it's a truism. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure Rupert would say that if you asked yeah. him. So, oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't go there. I'm, 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 I'm a psychologist. So I start with the, we know, all I really know is, this goes back to, to Descartes, who, who's accused of being a materialist. He was a metaphysician. <laughs> but um, I know that I am conscious. I know that. I, even, even if I've been hypnotized by some evil demon, and all the rest of what I see is, is just a dream that's been made to appear real. That's possible. But even so, I'm conscious of it. That can never be, consciousness can just never be denied. So, but that's all we really know. Everything else is interesting and we can think about it. I'm not talking about chopping wood and carrying water. That obviously exists. The people who try to deny that are just fools. I mean, there are a lot of people who try to deny that in one, on a different level. You know, I get up in the morning, I'm going to make a cup of coffee, and I have no doubt that when I pour hot water onto the coffee grounds, I'm going to get a cup of coffee. I, I'm not going to spin my wheels trying to analyze that. But beyond that, I really don't know anything. And so when I hear people talking about capital L love or God or all this. Yes, I have a sympathy for that. I don't, I don't certainly don't rule it out, but I don't know about the capital L. I mean, we have a kitten around here who's in love with my wife and he just follows her around wherever she goes. That's love, isn't it? Maybe. Why isn't that psych psychological state of that kitten the same, not the same in in degree, but the same in kind as what we call love, which is a biological feeling. It's a brain state. Maybe that's it. And I'm not saying it is. I would never say that. I'm, I mean, I, I have no perspective. I have nowhere I can stand to, to look into human life and know that. Um, one thing that's good about being a psychologist is that it's very grounding because you have to deal with actual pain and suffering and you can't just theorize, tell people like the non-dual people, that's not real, you don't really feel that, you're not a person and there's no suffering. Isn't it interpret interpretation? I mean I, I mean, I resonate with what you're saying completely and, and, and the place, I, I, for me it's like, okay, so the, I've had a certain experiences of life and at the same time I've been interpreting them. And that's inevitable. Yes. It's like you know, it, it's, it, it, there's no other there's no other way of, of of living. And as I've got older, I've reinterpreted the experiences and then changed how I've seen my past and seen it in in a new way. And I've made and I've listened to other people that seem to know what they were talking about and taken their ideas on and then found they were wrong for me or that I've just wrong full stop. So it feels like the, with everything, it's like the, the closer it's up, the more like it is the tiger. Uh, and let's not make the tiger in the other valley. Let's make the tiger in the house. It's like 
it's like you can find that out straight away. And then all these other things, you know, speculating about the evolution of the universe, for God's sake, and all of that, these are very rarefied and take a lot more, you know, it's very much harder to go, I know that. And, and, and I'm, I certainly have had, you know, I, I, one, of the, one of the other, one of the other things I was critical of that I didn't discuss, I haven't discussed this publicly at all, I don't think, only with my friends on, online, it, it, alongside the, oh, it all exists in consciousness, and then going, hang on, this is circular, was also kind of a preoccupation with the moment, which I, in my early books, that, that the one that I mentioned in discussion with Rupert, I'd also, the point I'd made just before that is very similar to this, like, now is all I know, this is it. But when you peer that down, I think you do end up with what you said, which is, well, it's not really, what I know is being, I know I exist. In fact, more than that, I'd say I know I exist and something exists, or maybe just that something exists, which seems to, that, that it's really in, in terms of like, so there's all certainties out the window, it's all interpretation, but that seems to be why we have the psyche. It feels like that's what it is. It, a bit like the senses have evolved to take in the explicit information about light and sound, for instance. The psyche has evolved to t interpret that because on its own, that the information is fairly useless. If I don't know that that's a tiger, that color, it's of no use to me. And if I don't know that tigers can eat me, it's of no use to me. And if I don't know it's moving towards me rather than away from me, which is putting it in time and a narrative, all of these things is what will make that information of any value to me. So it feels like we're definitely in that. And then the further it gets away from my everyday experience, the more speculative it becomes. But it's still a value. Still because, well, my interpretation that I'm exploring at the moment would be very much, I think we are the universe. I don't know what else we could be. So the universe has become Tim and Robert, and it's interested in what it is. And whether it has a purpose and what it's doing, and, and that's us. We're, that's why we've lived the lives we've lived, because the universe has turned from hydrogen into us. And, and we've gone, what the hell's this? What am I? Yes. So, <laughs> but that's a narrative, of course. That's a, that's a story which I hold at the moment simply because it seems to hold everything together better than anything else I found so far. Well, everything is a story. I mean, if we want to just sure, exactly. So that would that that's real reductionism. That's reductionism in its worst sense. In, in if, what way? If I say something about my experience. And somebody says, that's just a story like any other story. Yes, however, that particular part of the story matters to me and the other stuff doesn't. Yeah, and, and story, I mean, like, I mean, for me, it's like stories, wow, amazing. We, you know, that the, the universe can tell stories about itself. That's phenomenal. And that it can, yeah. it can conceptualize itself and that it can, can try to understand itself. It, I, I, I think that's just marvelous. Yeah. So the, this this item, the other the other non-duality truism that you have rejected now is all there is. I reject that one also. Okay, good. Me too. <laughs> totally, yeah. completely. It's nonsense, isn't it? Yes, it's silly. I yeah. have. I mean, are we really going to pretend that 
the Big Bang never happened and all of this physics and everything means nothing and it's all a lie. And this is like some, some um, fundamentalist Christian who says, the bones were just put there by God to make, you know, <laughs> it's ridiculous. The real ridiculous thing about it for me is that the sentence only makes sense because there's more than the now. <laughs> if, there's not, if there's not that flow of time, which allows you to connect with the past, then you can't do, it's nothing. It's everything is that movement of time. Everything's that movement of change, yeah, Heraclitus I, again. I think when I talk about this, I, I don't do it with sufficient clarity because a lot of people are confused and they think that I'm saying now is all there is. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this right now is it. This, what you think and feel in this moment is the only thing you have access to. But that yeah. includes your story. That includes yeah. Yeah. whatever science you've learned or, or yeah. art or that. Yeah. And so you can't go back and fix it, is what I'm saying. That's, yeah. that, that is what it is. And the future, we apparently have no access to it. Maybe we do. That's an, another imaginal question. You know, yeah. but you mentioned magic. Yeah. If there is some form of magic that yeah. gives people second sight or clairvoyance, maybe there is. That's a, to me, that's an open question. I know there are people who are convinced of it, but I'm not one of them. But but I, I don't. I'm 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 open about that. I've have have anyway. That's another whole topic. Let's go for let's go for. I feel like because of what you've just said. Um, I want to have a go at talking about identity and the ship because it references everything, actually. I'd love to hear this. Um, <laughs> it's brave of me. Come on, you've got to admit it. It's brave. We're, we're all um, friends here. We really are. I, I really love you. I, oh, I, I, I did right away. As soon as I, when you took, when you, when you told Rupert that's a, that's topological, I just went, yeah, yeah. I <laughs> I was I was nervous you know I, I'm not I'm not very good at I mean I when I can relax with someone and disagree I love it but I'm all I don't I don't enjoy upsetting people so I'm always a, a bit like you know anyway that's another thing so the ship how about this I this this has been important to me in my speculation has been about the nature of time and a while back what struck me was that this moment, as it were, it's not a moment, is it? But this flow is arising from the last one. So that what's happening now is arising from what happened before. And that the past, in a sense, hasn't gone anywhere because that's, as that's continually happening, all the information which makes this moment this moment is everything that's ever happened. So that actually time, we have this metaphor, which seems a wrong metaphor of time passing like we're just driving past it or something, or it's going shooting, you know, like, oh, just gone, nowhere, gone. Whereas actually it feels like time's accumulating. The information is, the, the richness that's happening is because there's more and more past all the time. And it's that which has led to the tendency towards novel emergence, because this is more and more information. And every moment it's happening now, it's happening now, it's happening now. From now on, all of our conversation will always be part of us. So it's just there. Whether we remember it or not, it'll be there. And if we remember it, it will actually affect how we relate in whenever we meet again or all of that. So that what? So that identity then becomes actually, every, everything becomes made of the past. That 
the, the great insight that arose in the 20s with the idea of the evolution of the universe was the universe isn't a thing, it's a process. And everything in it is a process. And processes are made of the past. They're made of time. So that what defines me is everything I've ever been and experienced and, and what defines you is the same. So when we meet, everything that Tim's ever been is meeting everything Robert's ever been, regardless of whether we remember it or any of that. And all of that, like you said, it can't be changed. You can understand it differently, but it, it's, it's happened. It's come into form. Everything that's come into form is formed. And that the interplay is between the, the formed and the formless, the past and the possible. And that, that where they coexist is what is now, is this experiencing, which is always a, a new version of the past. Sometimes pretty much the same, sometimes complete, you know, much more novel, but always based on it. So that what the ship is its past. So it is the same ship in that sense, because it's not made of matter, the ship. The ship's actually a different thing. It's an idea, it's an artifact. And it's, so it's just been continuing and you can tra trace it back because that's its identity. A bit like you and I, I in my body, you know, obviously they say, I don't know if it's true or not, but every atoms changed every 10 years but certainly it's every cell dies and so it's not the same body but it is a continuation of the same process and what this is is an informational process yeah so that's so, identity that's that's my take on identity yeah i think that's a pretty good one um one one of the questions that i'm asked a lot is refers to narrative and the past. When, when I've told people, when, when I've told people that for me awake means you don't feel like an agent. I don't feel like an agent or a doer. If if someone sees my behavior from the outside, they'll say Robert took a photograph. But when I'm actually working with a camera, it's not like that. I can't say exactly what it's like, but I don't feel that I'm photographing something else, some other, it's a, a, a visual process that's taking place. I'm not in control of it. The, the shutter gets clicked. I don't know why it gets clicked at that moment. It's not, it's not rational. Um, so so I'd like to explore this, 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 this up with you because the whole new no doer thing was very big for me, um, probably 30 years ago. And it can be understood in lots of different ways. So you're describing it experientially and I completely get that. And I love that experience. And actually you can have it at any moment, can't you? I mean, I can back off now and there's a sense in which this talking is just happening. I can, if I, if I, if I orientate my, 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 myself as the observer, it's just happening. And, but I also passionately feel that we are agents and that choice is a very important reality. And, and one of the things which I've been doing with non-duality non spirituality for a long time is wanting to be a voice for hu our humanity, of wanting to go, no, the, 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 the individual self matters it's not some illusion, it's not a bad thing. Volition is not an illusion. The, the, the everyday experiences you're having of being human are completely real. And, 
absolutely important. This is why you think they are. It's just that we need to understand what they are. So for me, what I see is that I am not consciously doing, well, actually, I don't think I'm consciously necessarily doing anything, but that the thoughts come. Where do these thoughts, I can't, I don't know where the thoughts come from. They just come. And that becomes really, really obvious if you, if, you, if you paid attention. But because I see myself as all of this information that makes Tim, the vast majority of it is unconsciously. So it's generating, the thoughts in the psyche are being generated unconsciously. And the, the role of consciousness seems to be to be able to reflect on them, to reflect them back, to be able to take the spotlight. When I don't put the spotlight on them, they just run. And they make me do things. And, but then when I put the spotlight on them, it slows it down and I can change it. I can learn. So if I want to learn a new activity, it's slow. I need to put the spotlight on it. Like I'm learning an instrument. I need to keep putting the spotlight on it. But then once I've learned, I'll take the spotlight off because I can just run now and it's much faster. So when I'm creating, I love getting in that place where some deep unconscious part of me is just working through me. And I'm, I'm not putting the spotlight on the process. I'm just looking, looking in awe at the, the thing as it emerges. But that doesn't mean that I'm not doing it. I am doing it. Or the thing which Tim is, which is this particular strand of individu individuated information, that is, is doing it. And, and in that way, it really matters. And the ability to question and stop and make a conscious choice is really integral because the universe, every, it seems like the universe is learning all the time. Everything's learning. But through me, it can learn consciously, in, 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 quickly, because it can then, because it can pay it attention, it can actually generate change much, much faster than if it's just running unconsciously. Well, I like that um, because we agree that um, events are important and can't be discounted by some kind of theory that none, it doesn't all none, it doesn't matter because nobody's doing anything. That's not when I no I, I don't go there at all. Right. I, ne never. Um, <laughs> I everything matters. Everything. It it may not matter to you, but it matters to somebody. And yeah. there are things that matter to you. That's the yeah. world we're living in here. Yeah. Well, a friend of mine just died of COVID-19. Oh. So what? Well, a thousand Americans a day die, but that one mattered to me. See, that's how it goes. That and somebody can say, well, pandemics happen. And, you know, yes, you can have a, a, a view from a thousand miles up. But when we get granular, it does, it all matters everything even a bad word that you might say to someone and you wish you hadn't matters i mean it, yep. it all matters i cry a lot i i do i cry so things matter to me for sure what i'm what i'm getting at um is yes it's possible to focus as you say restrict your attention to a very small field and perhaps in that very small field, there's a, you can be an agent. Maybe. I, I'm not sure about that. But, for example, if I choose something, I can say, I thought about all the issues involved, and I made this choice. 
yes, you can see it that way, but you can also see that when I was thinking about all these issues, I didn't make the thoughts. Those are the thoughts that arose, and but those are the thoughts that motivated the decision. So if we ultimately look at it, I don't think there's any way, place you could stick a pin in it and say, this is my doing. I, I think, I think it is. So, 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 what I, sorry to interrupt you, but it feels like, look, for me, it would be like, I think we're in agreement apart from maybe how we describe it, because for me, it would be like, well, what would it, who are you? Well, if you are all your experiences, if you are everything that has, that has formed Robert, then it, for it to be your choice, it arises from that. Therefore, they're all your choices, even the unconscious ones. But that the conscious ones are, are, are ones that you have taken the time to reflect on and to put the spotlight on. And therefore, you've actually, you've actually, spent, you've actually been able to reflect on them and they're conscious choices. So there's unconscious choices, they're conscious choices. But it feels like, look, there are choices because yeah. it, what would it, otherwise anything else would be meaningless. They've got, to, they've got to come from me. So I guess what I'm doing is I'm saying, look, the, it's not, we, we, we fetishize the conscious thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas really most of what we do is unconscious and that's a good thing. And it's still us because that's well, who we are. Well, it may, it may be meaningless. See, that's something, uh, that's an idea that I'm open to that I think a lot of people are not open to. All these doings may be meaningless. That doesn't mean that I don't feel them or that they don't matter to me. But ultimately, I have no belief. And I think you and I may part company here, but maybe not. <laughs> but I, I, I think we will. I don't feel that the universe is evolving in, in some positive way. It may be. I'm not I'm in no position to stand outside of it and watch that. This so, may be so my, my conviction that it does is, yeah. an, ir is an irrational, it's, it's a form, it's pro-noia. It's like an irrational, irrational belief in good things. So and, but sorry, Rupert, please finish. No, I interrupted you. So go ahead. I, I think we did it to each other. But the, 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 the reason that I have it isn't a rational reason. Or it's rational, but it's not evidence-based. Well, it is evidence-based. I'm talking in riddles to myself here. Let me just try and say it. It, my experience of what I would call the most emergent states I ever touch, so the most what awakened states, I guess, is what I would have called them before. I still do deep awake states. When it feels like I'm seeing the most I ever see, are always, have always, since I was small, been accompanied by a profound conviction in the goodness that we were of a goodness that underlied everything or was now I would say towards which it's evolving. And I, and I just can't throw that off. It's so powerful and that it gives me, it, it's a very central, it's a, it's a kind of a foundation. Now I also have to look at that and I've been doing this recently actually and go, yeah, but you know, is it just part of a, of a minor manic depressive cycle that you experienced Tim? And that when you're in your manic stage, you think it's all fantastic. And then when you're not, you think, oh, it's not so great. Is it, is it could be. And, and of course, that could be that. All mystical experiences could be that. But I can't still go there. When I, the, no matter how much I doubt it, there's something about it which is just so 
I, I, yeah, it just, it, it fill, it just fills me up, and I, and, and I, I trust it. Well, that's really beautiful. It's beautiful that you, that you can feel that so strongly, and yet keep a little, a little place that, that questions it. That's where I am with a lot of this stuff, and it, to me, that's a very, very rare. See, this is. I'm so glad we're doing this. This is, this is what attracted me about you right away. You. You're open-minded, and there's so many people who talk about spirituality, and they're not open-minded. They can pretend to, oh, yes, it's all lovely. They pretend that, but they really have a very, they're like a salesman. They've got, they've got the product, and God damn it, nobody's going to logic me out of this or science me out of it. None of it. I won't hear it. I won't have it. So I, I love that about you. That's beautiful. So... Yes, see, this goes back, this feeling that, that you have of, of love, capital L love, this is a very, very deep, deep layers in, in the human psyche. Whatever produced that psyche, I don't know. But um, if you, it's in mythology. You know, Carl Jung, I studied a lot of Jungian psychology. I was at a Jungian institute for a while in my postgraduate studies. Um, so I'm not a Jungian exactly, but I know a lot about it. Well, anyway, he believed, as you know, that, that myth, mythology is actually a story, a, a real, it's a real story, but in symbolic terms, but it's, it's bedrock of what it means to be human. And it, 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 so there's the story of, of, um, Eros and Psyche. It's a, I'll tell it in very, it's a beautiful story. I, I won't recount it because that takes 15 minutes, but I'll do it in one. I'll do, this is a short form. Um, Psyche was a mortal woman, but she was the most beautiful woman in the world, and people just fell for her right away. Well, Aphrodite was this goddess, and she was known for her beauty. But people began to neglect her temples, and because Psyche was around, the guys were hitting on her, and they kind of forgot, <laughs> forgot about Aphrodite. So Aphrodite got really pissed off, and she said, she called Eros, who's a god of love, and gave him an assignment. And she said, you go to Psyche, and you make her fall in love with the most hideous man in the world. I'll, I'll show that little bitch thing. So <laughs> Cupid goes there to do this, but instead he falls in love with Psyche. Now, this is where I'll abbreviate it because it's a long, beautiful story involving hot wax and castles and all this, but eventually um, it's all resolved. It comes out good and Cupid, uh, Eros and Psyche, Cupid is the Roman, Eros and Psyche are married. And Aphrodite's happy too because now um, you know, Psyche's living in the sky and guys forget about her and they go back to the temple. So it all comes out good in the end. Well, that, that's the marriage. The marriage of love and the Psyche. It, what, what, what this myth is telling us is this is bedrock. There's, you can't separate those two. They're married. They're now divine and they live in the sky. And nobody can 
separate. So the psyche, as, as this story is telling us, has love built into it. And I'm pretty sure that's true because I fell in love with a woman 47, six years ago, or however long it is, and I'm still in love with her. And that's bigger than Robert's philosophy or non-duality or any of this stuff. I mean, that's, that's serious. That's um, much more. It's, okay, so we're, we're, we agree on that page, right? We're, we're there. Yeah. So, I, yeah, so I, I, I never want philosophy or science to take the, the mystery, the chemistry, or whatever we call it, out, out of human experience. That, that, you're going to die anyway. Don't make a corpse out of it while you're still here. Come on. So that's my basic attitude, and I guess we share that. Absolutely, we do. Yeah, in one of my books a few years ago, I, I called it the mystery experience because, it, and 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 I I think pretty much just about every presentation I ever give tends to start with, well, here we are. No one knows what this is, and 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 just appreciating that, just opening up, and just being, just the pure joy of appreciating. The wonder and 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 not knowing and then the philosophy i love you know the etymology it's love and wisdom it's the love of sophia love of the goddess it's like a you know that there's a that there's love built into it and then and then the love is the center and i think you're right that's what the eros and psyche shows us and then we have this other quality with the love you know despite john lennon being one of my heroes when i was young still is i guess uh, you know, love isn't all we need. We also need the wisdom to know how to love, because that's really tough. And I, and the older I get, the you know, the more I just trying to feel like a beginner. So that that somehow that's the making sense of it. So, yeah. So it's the the love seems to be the experiential side, and then there's the making sense of it, and they and they both sit by side by side, and you never want to lose that mystery ever. That's for sure. Yes, that's beautiful which seems like a perfect place to end our conversation. And I hope the first of many. Um, and um, thank you for reaching out, Robert. And I'm, I'm so pleased I responded. Oh, thank you so much for having me in your room. I, this has been lovely, very, very much lovely. And I'm, I, I feel even more than I did before we talked that we're kindred spirits we may not agree on everything, but the basics, um, we seem to be pretty close. Yeah. And I think the thing about kindred spirits is it actually, it's a deeper thing than even the opinions. You know, it's, it's, it's something else. It's about how you orientate yourself to this mystery. And I recognize, uh, I recognize listening to you, um, a man who's been doing that and has, been doing it and and is is older than i am and uh and that's a inspiration oh thank you so much